Welcome to week five of Your Week with St. Luke's, our podcast where we're digging into the characters of our life story through David's life story. This week is my favorite character of Nathan. He plays the role of the fool and the prophet. And we have a lot of fools and prophets that come and speak into our lives just like Nathan did for David. So let's listen. Hello, friends, and welcome back to our course on David. This is week five of this study. This is just flying by. And in it, we're going to continue our exploration of this amazing and complicated story of David by focusing in on the various characters in his story. And the character type that we're going to look at this week is known in literary circles as the fool. Now, this term requires a little bit of explanation. The Fool is a recurring character type in the works of William Shakespeare, and it's based on the role of the jester in aristocratic courts across Europe at the time of Shakespeare. Now, jesters were entertainers. They were known for their skills in storytelling and playing music, and Shakespeare borrows this idea of the jester, but at the same time, he rethinks it. For Shakespeare, the fool is no mere entertainer. They are usually clever peasants or commoners that use their wits to outdo people of higher social standing. They speak truth to power. They confront kings and other people of high standing with issues of immorality and injustice. Now, just as Shakespeare's fool speaks truth to uh, other characters in the story, they also speak truth to the audience. And the way they do that is that they play an important role in shifting the audience's attention from the fictional world of the story being told to the reality of the audience's lives. And one way you might think about this is that the fool in Shakespeare's plays helps the audience realize that the play, no matter its subject, is always about the audience. It's always about what's going on in the real life of the people watching the play. Now, who might fit the role of the fool in the story of David? Well, in none of the descriptions of David and his royal court do we find any reference to a jester. In fact, that idea of a jester is not something that would have been present in the ancient Near Eastern world. However, there are two figures in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel that I think carry out many of the functions of the fool in Shakespeare's plays. One of those figures is the prophet Nathan, and the other is a woman named Abigail. Let's look at Nathan first. Now, Nathan first comes on the scene back in 2 Samuel 7, and that's a text that we've already visited together several times in this course. It's the text where David announces his plan to build a temple. There, Nathan appears with no introduction and no background information. All we know is that he has some connection to David the king. And this is a little bit odd because when we encounter most other prophets in the Old Testament, we get a little bit of biographical data, where they're from, whose family they are associated with, but not so with Nathan. In the scene that follows, David announces his plan to build a temple to the prophet, to Nathan. Now, why would David do this? Why does he announce his plans to build a temple to Nathan first? Well, at this point, let's take a step back and think about the role of the prophets in the ancient world. Now, when we typically think about prophets, we think of two main things. We think about prophets predicting the future. They gaze into the crystal ball or do some other such thing to predict what will happen in some far off distant future. Or we think about prophets as social activists, people who stand in the public square and denounce 
injustice. And while it's true that aspects of future telling and justice telling do fit into the job description of a prophet, in the ancient world, the prophets primarily had uh, and took on a different role. Primarily prophets in the ancient world were consultants or advisors to the king. And in this capacity, kings would approach prophets for advice or for counsel with respect to important decisions they had to make. So let's imagine a king and he's wondering if he should go to war against such and such an enemy. He would consult the prophet and the prophet would give advice, would offer uh, a yes or a no or offer some other form of advice to guide the king in that decision. Now, this is where the work of a prophet is quite political, at least in the ancient world. Prophets served, as you can imagine, at the pleasure of the king. And the assumption was that prophets existed to affirm and provide divine justification for what the king wanted to do. So if a king says to a prophet, you know, should I, uh, will I be victorious in this war or should I go to battle against such and such an enemy? And the king really wanted to do that. It was expected that the prophet would affirm what the king wanted to do. In this sense, the prophet offers some religious justification uh, for the the king's will to do what he wanted to do in the first place. And so I mentioned this because this was a common way of thinking about prophets and their role with respect to king in the ancient world. And I think similar assumptions are at place when we enter into 2 Samuel 7. David approaches Nathan the prophet with this plan to build a temple, and David's expecting that the prophet Nathan, like other prophets in the ancient world, would affirm his plan. He would give the answer that David wanted him to give. That is to say, yes, God is behind this plan. Go for it. And that's that's exactly what seems to be happening at first. In verse three, which you can see on your screen, Nathan says to David, go do all that you have in mind for the Lord is with you. This is the typical uh, prophetic response to a king's desire to do something. It's to provide the divine yes to carry out the king's will. But here's where thing takes, uh, things take a turn in the story of Nathan. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Nathan immediately thereafter, and it reveals that God is actually not with David's plan. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and then reading further in verse five, uh, God says, through Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? So it turns out that Nathan's task is not to unilaterally sign off on the king's plans. Rather, Nathan is to resist David's plans in this instance. This would have been risky business to resist the powerful, uh, to resist the will of a powerful man like David. Remember, prophets served at the pleasure of the king, and it's not hard to imagine that a prophet who resisted the plans of a king would be removed from office or worse yet, killed for not giving the answer the king desired. So in this moment where David, or excuse me, where Nathan uh, articulates God's resistance to David's plan, it's really risky business. Uh, Nathan is taking his own life in his hands in standing up to the king. Apparently, Nathan has the moral fortitude and courage of conviction to deliver God's message that questioned the king's plans. And apparently, Nathan was willing to deal with the consequences, whatever they might be, for standing up to the king. 
So this is where Nathan then is beginning to fit the role of this Shakespearean fool and, and where he's beginning to diverge from what's expected of prophets in the ancient world. Now, here's what's remarkable about this story is that David does not rage against Nathan. He does not threaten to kill him or have him removed from the prophetic office, but rather David, as we know from this text, responds with humility and grace. Uh, he accepts the Lord's resistance to his plan. He follows the prophet in, in subverting his plan to build a temple, and he moves on in a different way manner. What we are seeing here then, friends, is emerging this role of a biblical prophet, which is different than the role of prophets throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Prophets in Egypt and Mesopotamia and other parts of the ancient world, as I've said, they were consultants for the king who were basically yes-men, who provide uh, divine justification for the king's will. Not so with biblical prophets. Now, not every biblical prophet is in close relationship with an Israelite king, as is the case with Nathan and David. But it is true that for almost all Old Testament prophets, they do have the task of challenging the king. And so, in this sense, the work of prophets, though deeply spiritual and oriented around divine revelation and God's will for justice, uh, prophets are always entangled and wrapped up in the politics of the day, insofar as they are meant to be a counterweight to the king in charge. Now, I mention all of this because it's important background information for understanding the second major scene that Nathan is involved in. And so here we want to fast forward to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. And this is the chapter that immediately follows what we studied last week when we talked about David's rape of Bathsheba and then the plot to cover up that rape uh, through the killing of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. Let's look at how chapter 12 begins. Chapter 12, one, or chapter uh, Verse 12.1 says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Notice here that the chapter actually begins in mid-sentence, and this is really odd. It's not something that we typically see. Chapters typically begin with a new sentence and a new paragraph, but not here. And I think this is suggestive of the fact that uh, Nathan enters immediately on the scene of David's sins. The story of David's sins is not complete until the sins are brought to light. And that's exactly what Nathan is called to do, to bring David's sins to light. But how Nathan does that is quite interesting. Let's read further what Nathan says. Nathan says to David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Notice Nathan's ingenious mode of communication. He doesn't come into David wagging his finger, denouncing the king with harsh and biting words. He doesn't rattle off an angry tweet. No, Nathan begins by telling a story. And, and this is a really important detail here. Even though Nathan knows that David in the past has responded positively to some prophetic pushback against his plan to build a temple, he still realizes that anytime you challenge a king, 
you take your own life in your hand. And in this case, the stakes seem higher. While in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan challenges the king's building project, here he must challenge the king's character. And it's for this reason that the prophets must, must think very carefully, not only about what he says to David, but how he says it. And as we see in what we just read, the prophet presents the king with a parable. Now, parables are something that many Christians are very familiar with because Jesus relies on parables as a central element in his teaching. And here we need to keep in mind that Jesus does not invent the, the genre of the parable. Jesus, in teaching parables, draws on an already existing Jewish tradition of storytelling. Now, let's think for a second about actually what a parable is. A parable is a particular story used to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. The Greek word parabola, from which we get the word parable, uh, has in it the root para. And in that root para means alongside, as in the English word parallel or parallelogram. And that's exactly what parables do, if you think about it. They put two things alongside one another. The events and the characters of the story on the one hand parallel the events and the characters in real life on the other hand. And there are often hints in the story that help the audience make the connection between the two parallels, the parallel of the story and the parallel of real life. Now, in this story of the shepherding, um, those uh, connections probably jump out to you. The one that's obvious is that David, as a king, was known as the shepherd of Israel. And so it makes sense that this story then is a story about shepherds and sheep and the protection of those sheep. So that would have sort of resonated with what we already know about David. He was a shepherd boy, but then also this metaphor of the king as a shepherd. So there are those connections. There's another connection to help us decode that's harder to identify because it's hidden in the Hebrew. There's that little detail in verse three where it's, it's said, and it's very odd, that, that the man who owned this one little ewe lamb actually brought up the lamb like a daughter. And that seems like a really weird and odd thing to say, but I think there's a clue in the Hebrew of why it's said. In Hebrew, the word for daughter is bat, and that's exactly the sound and the meaning of the beginning of the name Bathsheba. So uh, the story is about a bat, uh, that is the parable is about a bat, a daughter, the sheep uh, being seen as a daughter, but in real life, it's about another bat, this Bathsheba, another daughter. And so I think that little linguistic clue is there for the audience to make the connection between the story of the parable and the real story of David's life. Now, that being said, in most parables, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between every element in the story and every element in real life. For instance, in this parable, it's clear that David is the rich man and Uriah is the one who owns just one little ewe lamb and the ewe lamb is Bathsheba, but there's no direct parallel uh, in, the, in the parable between the visitor who comes to town and anything in David's life. In other words, that's sort of a throwaway element needed for the parable to work, but it doesn't directly correspond to anything we know about David and his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, this might be, in fact, the genius of the story, for it's in this imprecision, uh, or for it's this imprecision that enables the parable to work so well. You see, David doesn't initially recognize 
the parallel. He doesn't recognize that the story of the parable is really a story about his life and his sins. David gets caught up in the parable. In fact, it seems that David doesn't even realize this is a parable. He thinks it's a literal story, a historical story, and it's something that actually happened. And I believe, friends, that Nathan, as a wise prophet, or as this ingenious fool in the Shakespearean sense, is banking on this very thing happening. For Nathan knows that the only way for this story to work is if uh, David himself recognizes the injustice of what the rich man had done. David has to see this for himself. He has to arrive at this conclusion himself in order in the end to be convicted about his own sin. And this is exactly what happens in 2 Samuel 12. If we keep reading into verse five, we read, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Apparently, David still had a moral compass. He can still spot injustice. He knows right from wrong. He still has the capacity to be outraged at the exploitation of the poor and the marginalized. The parable has appealed to something that is already deep inside of David, but that he has apparently been disconnected from through his rise to power as a king. Based on David's background and upbringing, he would have known the value of a single ewe lamb to a poor shepherd. David likely would have known the reality of rich shepherds who had at their disposal hundreds of sheep and goats. The parable, in other words, hits home for David. David, as the son of a poor shepherd, has the ability to relate to the poor man in this story. He knows the rich man is wrong and the punishment is clear. The man should be put to death. What David doesn't realize, of course, is that in announcing this, he pronounces his own death sentence. And this is precisely the moment when Nathan needs to puncture the pretense of the parable, to pull back the curtain, if you will, and to reveal that the story from the beginning really is all about David the king. And Nathan does this with striking concision. In English, we read uh, Nathan's words as, you are the man. In Hebrew, that's only two words, atah ha'ish, and those two words pierce the heart of the king. David's response is equally powerful and concise. In the NRSV, it said, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. But again, in Hebrew, it's only actually two words, hatati la'adonai. There's no excuses from David. There's no, if I hurt you, then I'm sorry. He names and owns what he has done wrong. Now, what we don't have here is a law is, is a window into David's inner thoughts. We don't know if David prayed some elaborate prayer to the Lord. We don't know how all of this unfolded. We only get those two words, Hatati la Adonai, I have sinned against the Lord. But later readers of this story wondered, what is it that David would have prayed at this moment? And one way that later readers of this story attempted to fill in the blanks or to fill in the gaps of what we don't hear is actually recorded in a psalm. Psalm 51 comes with the superscription or a little sort of title that says, uh, to the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, friends, it's very unlikely that Psalm 51 
uh, or it is very likely, excuse me, that Psalm 51 was written long after the time of David. And so what the superscription is doing uh, is giving us an imaginative way into the story. Whether or not David actually prayed the words of Psalm 51 at that moment is uncertain. But what is certain is that Psalm 51 captures the spirit of the moment. We can imagine David having prayed a prayer that's much like Psalm 51, that has the same tone and spirit to it. And it's a beautiful and heartfelt prayer. And we'll have a chance to actually take a closer look at Psalm 51 in our discussion time together. Now, there's one final element to point out before we leave Nathan. Immediately after David says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan responds. And here's what he says. Now, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. So notice what's happening here. There is true forgiveness from Nathan to David, uh, but nevertheless, there's a consequence for David's sin. The child shall die. The child that Bathsheba becomes pregnant with shall die as a result of David's sin. This pattern is in keeping with the promise given to David back in 2 Samuel 7. If you recall back in that passage, uh, God promises not to strip David of the kingship, and never to forsake him, but it does not preclude, the promise that is, does not preclude the possibility of punishment. The promise continues, but there is real loss and there is real grief. And one of the things I'm going to invite you to discuss in just a few moments is what you think about the form of punishment. Does the, does the punishment fit the crime? Does the punishment uh, affect others or what, uh, who others, which others are affected by this form of punishment? So I want to create some conversation about your reaction uh, to the nature of the punishment that David faces. Now, in the chapters that immediately follow, David's family falls apart. His son, Amnon, as we read in chapter 13, lusts after uh, another a daughter of David, uh, Amnon's half-sister, Tamar, and through a scheme, he comes to rape her. The son, Amnon, tragically mirrors the misdeeds of his father. Perhaps in growing up in the royal court, Amnon absorbed the idea that powerful men take what they want, what they want and can get away with it. Unfortunately, in this scene, there's no prophet to speak out against Amnon for his wrongdoing. Nathan is nowhere to be found. And I want to suggest that in the face of Amnon's rape of Tamar, David was the one who was supposed to play the fool. That is, David was the one who, like Nathan the prophet, was to stand up and speak truth to power, to defend uh, the poor and, and, and oppressed and the marginalized, to speak truth to what Amnon had done, but David is silent in this text. In fact, what we learn is that when the matter is reported to David, he becomes very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. You see, David, I think, unfortunately, mistakenly thinks that <clears throat> love and justice cannot go together. He, in his mindset, he thinks, I, will, I can either love my son or I can hold him accountable for this great act of injustice. It's one or the other. Uh, but notice the contrast here with what God has promised David. The language is strikingly similar. If we go back to 2 Samuel 7, we read this. God speaking to David says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings, but I will not take my steadfast love for him 
You see, God sees David as a son, but in God's economy, he can imagine both love and justice living together. He promises not to take his steadfast love from David, but he also says that this does not preclude the possibility of punishment. And in fact, you might say that holding David accountable for his sins was part of God's responsibility as a parent. Now, the results of this failure to hold together love and justice are disastrous for David and his family. Another of David's sons, Absalom, who was Tamar's brother, is enraged, and he's enraged both at Amnon for raping his sister, uh, but also he's enraged at his father, David, for not doing anything about it. Absalom ends up killing Amnon and launching a civil war against his father. Through these events, David almost loses the kingdom. And it's striking that David's downfall is not because of a bad foreign policy decision, not because of the loss on the battlefield, not because he worshiped another god. Rather, David's potential downfall hinges on the failures within his own family. These failures threaten to undo him and all that God had promised him. Now, before we close, I want to turn to the second character, a minor character that I think also in many ways fits the bill of a fool in the Shakespearean sense of the term. And this character is named Abigail. Because her story is less well-known than that of Nathan, I want to draw your attention to what happens and then the dynamics that exist between her and David. Abigail's story is found back in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Here, let me set the stage for you. David's army, he's an army of 600 men, and they are nearing Mount Carmel. And there they encounter a very rich shepherd who had a massive flock. Now, this trope in the story should sound very familiar to us. In Nathan's encounter with David, we hear of a rich man who had a massive flock. And that's part of the parable. This might prefigure the story that Nathan tells, but we have reason to believe that this is a real character in David's story. And the man who owned these massive, uh, this massive amount of sheep and goats was a man named Nabal. And he is described by the text, this is almost funny, he's described as being a surly and a mean man. Indeed, the word Nabal in Hebrew means fool. So it, the character's name actually describes what he's like. He's a fool. And the reader, at least the Hebrew reader, knows this from the very beginning. His wife is a completely different story. His wife is Abigail, and the text in 1 Samuel 25 describes her as a clever and beautiful woman. It's a portrait in contrast. Now, Abigail is never called a prophet, but I think we have reason to, to, to think that she is framed as a prophet. The very first line of the chapter in which Abigail appears in 1 Samuel 25, the very first line of that chapter announces Samuel's death. And I don't think this is insignificant or accidental, because while Abigail is never called a prophet, it might be that we are to see her as playing the role of a prophet and a type of hinge figure between Samuel and then his successor, Nathan. In any case, here's what happens. David is approaching Nabal's land, and he sends out a group of 10 to offer words of peace and to see if he can secure safe passage through the land and maybe even some provisions. Well, Nabal, the fool that he is, is having none of this. His ego is, uh, is inflamed, and he says uh, incendiary words about David. He says, who is this man? Who is this king? And, and, and Nabal is not going to give David safe passage. He's not going to give him provision, provisions. In fact, 
Nabal is ready to go to war with this virtual stranger. Well, David gets wind of this, and he too has his ego inflamed, and he's ready to go to war against Nabal. It's about to be a bloodbath. And it's precisely at this moment that Abigail intervenes. She approaches David, gifts and hands, and makes this long speech to David filled with compliments and deferential language. And without going into all of the text here, uh, basically what happens is that Abigail talks David down from waging a war against Nabal. She kind of goes behind the back of her husband. She subverts his desire to wage war against David. She intervenes with David and offers a diplomatic, peaceful solution that diffuses uh, the battle and what surely would have been a ton of bloodshed before it actually evolves. So I want to suggest that Abigail, much like Nathan and much like the fool in Shakespearean terms, has this moral courage and conviction and, and, and sort of the cleverness to stand up to men of power, to her husband, Nabal, on the one hand, and to the King David on the other. And she diffuses the situation through a clever use of language, of compliments and deferential words. She appeals to David's merciful side. She appeals to actually to his ego. And she gets uh, David to choose another way forward with Nabal. So she's this incredibly clever figure. Who, uh, who helps to negotiate peace in the midst of two parties who are ready to go to war. Now, as the story ends, and there's another interesting detail, because David apparently was incredibly impressed by this Abigail, this, this strange woman, this, this wife of the fool Nabal. And maybe not surprisingly, David wants to take her as his wife. But how he approaches her is, uh, is markedly different then how we know he approaches Bathsheba much later. For instead of orchestrating, for instead of taking Abigail, sleeping with her, and then orchestrating the death of her husband, things work in the reverse and quite differently. Uh, David waits for Nabal to die. He's apparently a very unhealthy man and dies not long after the story unfolds. He awaits the death of the husband. Uh, he does not orchestrate it. And then he approaches Abigail and does not take her in the way that he, is, that he later takes Bathsheba, but rather he makes Abigail an offer for marriage, an offer that Abigail can either receive or reject. So the disposition here of David to these uh, to Abigail is very different than what David does uh, with Bathsheba. It's clear in this story that Abigail actually has a voice in the matter. She is able to consent or resist. It's a very different scene, and it illustrates that what we see happen between David and Bathsheba is not the only way between a man and a woman in the ancient world. In other words, it's not always the case that women are seen as property and can be taken without any choice. What we see in 1 Samuel 25 is a different scenario. I would not necessarily use the word egalitarian to describe what we see here, but there's definitely a different way of being with one another, one in which Abigail's will and voice has a much bigger role to play in their eventual marriage.
So what we've seen here in this lesson is that there are at least two figures in First and Second Samuel, the one being Nathan, the other being Abigail, who play the role of the Shakespearean fool and that they have the capacity to stand up to powerful people, namely David, to speak truth to power and to embody God's desire for justice and peace. Doing so is always risky business in the ancient world, but so is the role of the fool. They always are taking some risk in being a witness to God's peace and love and justice. And so it is with us today, as we are called to be fools for Christ, to have a prophetic voice in the church and the public square, we too take a risk to stand for justice in this world. But that risk is necessary, and it's essential for God's uh, cultivation of shalom in this world. So friends, that's our lesson five. I'm looking forward to your conversation about various elements of the story, and we will conclude next week as we turn to the sixth and final chapter of this study. Thanks so much, and we'll see you soon. Today for our Office Hours conversation, Jad is going to join our doctors from Candler Foundry and talk about the idea of a prophet. There have been times when you've been asked to be a prophet in someone's life that maybe you stepped away because it was a little bit too much. So let's talk about what happened with the biblical prophets and how maybe we can seek to listen to God's call to be that in someone else's life. Grace and peace, everyone, and uh, welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's and uh, our podcast here as we're uh, diving into further week five uh, when it comes to David and the characters and his story and what it means for us and our story and what, what are we on to now? Right? Yeah, this is week five, so we're talking about the fool, and I feel like we need to unpack that term a little bit because we can <laughs> mean some I'm here really to this, different things. I'm on this one right now. <laughs> That's right. So in Shakespearean terms, the fool is a character, usually the court jester, but it doesn't have to be. It's the character who says the thing that the protagonist may not want to hear, but needs to hear. So I, for me, that's, I think of prophet, someone who can speak truth to someone. Now, the interesting thing, both in Shakespearean literature, but also here in our biblical text, is that these fools, these characters who fill this role, tend not to be the protagonist's best friend or parent or spouse. And I'm curious what you all think about that. Why is it that the fool comes from a little bit further outside the inner circle of the person in question? Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I, I wonder if it's because um, they're they're too close, right? The spouse and the, or the parent or those other figures in their life are are too close. But maybe there's a there's an intimacy that they're not close enough to. I think sometimes as you grow up and you have you have friends that you you share more things with and they challenge you in ways that your parent or your mentor growing up don't. And so I wonder if there's a there's a already not yet you're too close but not close enough or not close in the ways that you can be trusted with your voice. Right. And the, those those relationships, those people that are close to that that person in power, they're enmeshed. You know, they're mm. they're also entangled yeah. with the uh, if I speak this truth, what's going to happen to my children? What happens to the other people who I'm protecting or caring for? Whereas the fool um, is also always a very lonely person. Like anytime you see like the hmm. gesture, the just the jester, uh, it's always this solitary figure that's kind of off to the side. And they, because they're, um, I guess we use the term camp. You know that they're kind of outside of the norm. 
um, which is a lonely place, but it is a place from where you can say things that you can't when you're that close yeah. Yeah. into the center. That makes me think of of like a really good therapist. That's a neutral third par- third party that has no investment on on anything else in your life, just mm-hmm. your well being, right? And they can speak a truth to you that otherwise other people couldn't speak to you or are not willing to, right? Not, um, but that you need to hear. Right? Yeah. So that makes me think of that kind of that role that a good therapist can be in our lives. Oh, right? I like that. I hadn't thought of it quite that way before. But like a therapist, they have some critical distance. They mm-hmm. need to be able to mm-hmm. see the situation from a little bit further away. And it's sometimes it's that vantage point that helps things become visible that might be not visible. I think the other dynamic that I think of, too, is that it is hard to be both the fool and a caregiver at the same time. In order to speak truth to power, it's hard to then also simultaneously be the caretaker. Those positions have to be occupied by different figures. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> you need, uh, like we said a couple of weeks ago, uh, a spouse who can speak truth to us and help us and support us as a caregiver. And that's, but then, then it's hard to wrap them up. And your spouse yeah. cannot be your therapist, that's too, right? right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the story of David, Nathan most famously plays the role of the fool. And we think of Nathan as a prophet. That's how he's described. And of course, Nathan comes on the scene after what I affectionately call Bathsheba Gate, after this huge <laughs> scandal of the rape of Bathsheba and then the cover up and the murder of Uriah. And Nathan is the one that is able to speak to the situation. And do y'all remember how he does that? He doesn't just come up to David and say, look, buddy, we need to talk about some things. There's a problem. He tells a parable. And I'm wondering what you all think about that. Why does he tell this parable as a way into confronting David? Well, the same reason that someone from the outside has some distance to be able to talk to these these central characters. A parable is also a way of getting some distance from oneself in the ah, story. Okay. So mm-hmm. when he tells this parable, there, so there was this guy and he was so wealthy, it gives a little bit of distance because it doesn't necessarily mean me. Right. It could be any guy who has a lot of money, a lot right. of sheep who has yeah. this, right? And so it's easier to entertain the possibilities in one's mind when there's a little bit of a distance and mm-hmm. a story does that. Yeah. Uh sings a song or tells a parable or a story that's entertaining to everyone else, but it deeply convicts the king or the queen or whatever is happening there. It's a way of telling a deeper truth. Or I even think about the way we do roasts. Yeah. You know, um, which, I mean, they're great fun, but they're a way of telling truths. It, It reveals something about someone, but we use humor. And we also use exaggeration. And so painting this this parable with these big, intense emotions and things like that and sort of riling up David with that is this way of sort of um, playing on his emotions in order to get him to a place where he can see himself the way he really is. And I mean, I think you're right that there's sort of this like double language or symbolism in it. But sometimes I think, gosh, how did David not see it? This is a story about sheep. You are a shepherd. Like (laughs) this isn't super secretive here. That's how it explained to him, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But the reason it works, right, is that David fully buys it. David enters the story. And I think that the the redeeming part for David, what hinges him in to conviction, is that David, despite all of his flaws, still has a sense of justice in him. So when Nathan asks, like, what should happen to the to the man who withheld the sheep, um, David's ready to pronounce the death sentence. Right. right. And he doesn't realize, of course, that he has just pronounced his own 
death sentence. And that's the that's where it hits. And and Nathan says to him in Hebrew just two words, Haish Ata, you are the man. That is, he decodes the story for him. And that's when I think when David's heart breaks. And I wonder, could there have been any other way to have convicted David? I think not. What do you all think? I don't have that much creativity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I do think that I, I do think it is it is a, a powerful way to speak a truth to someone in power, mm-hmm. um, and, and I do think also what I appreciate about biblical narrative and in this narrative in particular is it also speaks a truth into us too, mm-hmm. convicts us. We have a sense of justice, and yet we don't see our place in the injustice of what's happening, and uh, and so the parable can do what it what it should do. It flips it on us as well. Um, so that doesn't answer that that question, but it does lead to another other thoughts about um, how does Nathan's foolishness, his 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 uh, parable, speak deeper truth to us as well mm-hmm. as to David. Right, mm-hmm. you you can almost hear his voice like, "Huh, what should we do about this guy?" You know, he really yeah. is <laughs> right, playing right. the fool. Like Nathan's playing dumb to a certain extent. Like I I just don't know what what can be done and. What I love about that is it gives David room to do the right thing. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, that's right. I feel like David up until this point is really imprisoned in himself because yeah. he does the the first wrong thing, and then that leads to the next wrong thing, and it's as if all of his choices are just leading him further and further down the path that's going in the wrong direction entirely. Mm-hmm. But by 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 confronting David in this way, it makes this room for him to finally say the one right thing. Right. This is wrong and yeah. you shouldn't do it. And it's like that's the moment that although it's really painful when he says, you're the man. Yeah. I feel like David knew that and this finally gave him space to admit it, yes. which is a gift, a real gift when you finally have space to do what's right. That's right. Um, regardless of how hard it might be. Yeah. And it wasn't, um, and it would had that discovery had to be internal for David. It was David was not going to change by Nathan browbeating him into like you're sinful. Yeah. Right. You know, it, David has to say, uh, "Hatati la Adonai, I have sinned against the Lord." It has to be his voice who owns that. It can't be Nathan saying that. David has to own that himself. Yeah. It can't be begrudging. It can't right. be, you know, okay, if I have to apologize or if I have to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Dad. Yeah. No, you're not. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. he's in, and then the role of this, the yeah. fool helps us. I love that. Gives us space to be able to hear it. One of the things about this, we can come back to that, EB, <laughs> when you get that thought in a second. Um, but one of the things I think about the connection is the power of parable in this moment, right? It's all about that storytelling that is part of the conviction. And it makes me think, and I know this is not how we typically think of Jesus, but doesn't Jesus also play the role of of the fool? Mm-hmm. Don't all of the parables come with the implicit, uh, you are the man, yeah. right? And so I remember Amy Jolivine, this wonderful uh, Jewish thinker and scholar who studies the New Testament, says, if you ever walk away from a parable identifying with the righteous person, You've read it wrong, yeah. right? It, you are always supposed to be like David, the the person who says, "Oh, I'm that person," right? That's the power of the parable, and that it draws you in, and then it turns the table on you. They're really subversive little stories. Parables are. And I, I I like thinking about that flipping the who how we understand Jesus because because with all this history in between, 
we think, oh, Jesus is almost not even walking. He's hovering across the, the, the ground. He's, everyone's, oh, tell us wisdom. And he's really being tested, right? In every, typically every situation, the, 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 he's being questioned in ways mm -hmm. that are like, okay, we're going to screw up here. And when he tells the parable, it's, if you flip it and say like, like a prophet, like a fool in this way, mm -hmm. um, he's drawing you closer to your own conclusion, which is what he's doing there. So I, I really like that because it, I don't know, it makes uh, Jesus telling of the parables accessible in a totally different way. Yeah. And, and the thing about parables is that there is no one interpretation. Like there, there, and that's that's the whole idea of a, a parabola is that it keeps re, keeps recycling and mm. it keeps sort of being in flux. So a parable in itself is an ongoing story, you know, and one that can constantly be reinterpreted, um, which I think is really interesting because I wonder as we see what happens with David's family as they meet challenge after challenge and violent situation after violent situation, I wonder how this parable maybe shifts mm. and what it looks like and w who becomes the man. Is it is it still David? Does he see this happen? In it, how does this parable end up um, growing and shifting as hmm. the family also does? Oh, I like that. In, in this sort of like the flexibility of parables and mm – -hmm. Um, you know, because one of the the figures that doesn't have a clear counterpoint to the actual circumstance is the visitor who comes into town for whom the banquet is thrown. We don't that there's no person in David's story with Bathsheba that fills that role. But I wonder, as readers, if we can imagine ourselves even in that position. What mm -hmm. it's what is it like to be a bystander to injustice? To seeing this get played out, what's the role of the visitor in that story, right? That's not explored mm, here, but doesn't the parable yeah. invite us yeah. into that does, too? Because there's a character there. Right? Yeah. And maybe we're, the, we're the, the counterpoint to imagine that side of it. Um, let me shift things just a little bit on this. So we often speak of the mission of the church in the world, that the church has a prophetic mission or a prophetic witness, and individual disciples have that prophetic witness. So in some ways, we are called, like Nathan, to play that role of the fool, speaking truth to power. But as you know, that's, that's not easy to do at times. And so I'm wondering, like, what are the barriers? And this you could answer with respect to your own life or just as you think of the mission of the church. What are the barriers to speaking truth to power in the world today? What prevents us from living into that calling? Well, I think just like like David, all of our poor decisions we've made before. Yeah. Like, and I think about uh think about things like the Supreme Court. Think about what precedence mm. means mm -hmm. and the fact that, well, this is how we've always done it. And we've made poor decisions. And so the fact that we have made them almost seems to mean that. Therefore, we will keep making them. Right. And so I think that that's one of the things that we we view as an obstacle mm -hmm. to doing the right thing, to speaking mm -hmm. truth to power. Yeah. And there seems to be also, and I don't get too much into this, but this place of you can't change, you can't grow. And so mm. if you made these decisions or you felt this way about something in the past, you 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 don't have as much validity in when right. you're speaking Who do you think you it. are? Yeah, like yeah. you were, you know, awful whatever time ago and you can't grow, you can't change <laughs> right. how you feel and think yeah. about things. And so your voice is limited in some way, shape or form. I mean, like, that's a perception yeah. you can have of yourself, right? right? Well, I've, I've grown and changed, but everyone's going to think I'm a hypocrite now because I feel differently or I'm speaking up now. That can be definitely an internal uh, barrier yeah. to speaking truth to power. Yeah, I hear that. I think these are great, uh, great ways of thinking of it. I would add two things. One is that um, 
we're fearful of the loss that can come from speaking truth to power. If you think about it, Nathan was risking everything, Mm -hmm. right? This story could have ended with David ordering the execution of Nathan, right? right? I mean, he is questioning the most powerful figure, and that is risky business. And so I think sometimes it's fear Mm -hmm. that prevents us from speaking up and speaking out. But the other part of it, and and for me this is increasingly true today, is that in order to – in the biblical story of David and Nathan, in order to speak truth to power, Nathan has to be in relationship with David. He has to be in a place where they can talk. And they do talk. And that when Nathan finds out about everything David has done, Nathan stays in conversation with him and doesn't write him off and say, okay, he's over there in that camp, and I've got my people in this camp, and then never speak. So you have to be willing to stand in that gap and to talk to people you disagree with oh. and to not write them off, right? Right, And that's hard for us today, maybe more than it ever has been hard for us as a people, as a church, as a country. These are difficult times for for standing in that gap and having those conversations. Yeah. I, I think believing in redemption, yeah. right? And believing that it's possible is, is important to it as well. Because why would I speak up if I don't, if, if I don't think this can be redeemed, right? Yeah. Why would I speak up if, if um, reconciliation is impossible? Or again, like back to my other earlier point, if I think people can grow and change their mind and, and see something differently, I, we have, that's a core uh, principle for, for us as Christians. We believe in redemption. And yeah. so, that, that can help us break through those barriers to, to speak truth to power. I also just think of the systems of, of David's court and, you know, he is the king and the systems that we have, you mentioned the Supreme Court, like just, um, they can seem undaunting. Like, mm. who am I yeah. um, to yeah, speak yeah, yeah, truth yeah. when this power is so big? Right. Um, what, like you said, with he, David could have killed Jonathan. Yeah. Or uh, um, uh, uh, Nathan. Nathan. Yeah. But, um, that that's very scary. Yeah. Um, but belief in redemption, I think, can uh, can drive us to a, a place of hope and the power to speak up. That's right. Well, what a beautiful word to end on. Thank you both for this conversation and just exploring more deeply who this Nathan is and what role he plays in David's life. Thanks to you both. <laughs>